We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Ghana people, the traditional custodians whose ancestral lands we've recorded this podcast on. We acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and the relationship of the Ghana people to country, and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to the land and cultural beliefs. Hello and welcome to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. My name is Ali Clark and I'll be your host as we unpack the leadership journey brought to you by Professional and Continuing Education at the University of Adelaide. The podcast will bring you all the tools, tips and insights to help you unlock your leadership potential and get the most from your team. We'll be talking to South Australian leaders from all walks of life as they share their leadership stories and we'll support your lifelong learning with the latest leadership thinking and advice from the university facilitators to provide the essential guide to levelling up your leadership. Our guest today is a creative visionary who hails from Wyala, but comes to us via an international career in film, television, the arts and festivals. She's the director and CEO of the Adelaide Fringe, which involves more than 7,000 artists, 400 venues and more than 1,200 shows. The Fringe is the world's second largest annual arts festival and Heather Kroll has been setting the vision for it since 2015, collecting a string of awards along the way for her leadership. Heather, Hello. Hello. What do you think it means to be a leader? Oh, wow. That's yeah. uh, quite a big question, isn't it? Um, well, I'm, uh, I love to work in a very collaborative methodology with people, whether it be the stakeholders on the outside or whether it be the staff on the inside and every other collaborator in between and particularly in festivals, those collaborators are artists, venues, producers, presenters, sponsors, everybody, Mm. government, council. And so in order to be able to collaborate on those levels, you have to be willing to be quite adaptive and um, flexible, not very rigid. (laughs) Gone are the days of very fixed timelines and this milestone and that deadline. It's more let's keep talking and see what emerges. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So how do you, though, balance that with dealing with maybe a pure creative with all of those flexibilities versus a government that you might need decisions, sponsorship out of, whatever it might be? And it's, I mean... God bless governments, but not necessarily known for their flexibility on what it is that they need. Yeah, so uh, it is a lot about having faith and confidence in the process and believing that the collaborative process, the best will emerge. And I really believe that you do need to think that the best will happen. Um, If you sit around thinking about the worst will happen and all the different ways that the worst could happen, uh, it doesn't really help you in any way. It just it just takes up space. So thinking that the best will happen, but of course you have KPIs and you have agreements with every single different partner in the festival landscape. Like for example, when we're working with thousands of artists about their process, their, their work, we have to have patience with the way they pull together their work and we have to say, well, look, there are certain deadlines that you can't miss, like in a minute the guide is going to go to yeah, the printer. the program and everything and, you need uh, to know. Yeah. yeah, if you want to be in the program guide, 
you need to tell us by this date. Mm. But then we say, well, you know, we do live in a digital world and in the last few years we say, well, if you did miss that printed deadline, we've worked extremely hard to improve our digital experience at the Fringe. That's probably one of the biggest things that I've really overseen since I arrived, which was that we needed to get a website that would work on your mobile, that would, would really be able to, you would be able to find whatever you wanted in that program. And we certainly didn't have the ticketing system and the website when I arrived that would allow that sort of flexibility for yep. what customers wanted. Yep. And But what that also gave artists an opportunity if they were running late and they didn't make the guide, it's fine because there's millions of eyeballs on the website and we've made the best white experience for the customers possible online and so it's about finding flexibility within even yes of course there are deadlines around print there's deadlines around the cycle of a festival is is unforgiving in that dead you know that the, the, yeah. the day is coming is, we're not delaying yeah, yeah. it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um but being adaptive in a way that what I mean is that we what got us here isn't necessarily going to get us there next year. So we have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to um, hear feedback and we need to be willing to believe that actually that feedback isn't uh, having a go at us. It's actually about, you know, it's a chance for us to listen and improve what we do. And so sometimes feedback can be a bit, oh, it's jarring. But, at, you know, hopefully what it means is that, you adapt and change and, and, and deliver in a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I try and be as adaptive and flexible as we possibly can and then different partners, like whether they be government, council or sponsors or different venues, everyone has their different expectations and we can't meet everybody. We can't meet everybody's expectations but I certainly do get our team to think how can we, you know, meet as many as we possibly can. Mm. So rather than a no as a go-to, I always like a yes and sort of like, you know, at yeah, the yeah, and, yeah, yeah. at the end. Yes, in case and. Of yes yeah. and yeah. we uh, <laughs> But, you know, the no as the go-to isn't really a state of mind that I like to encourage in within the headquarters at Fringe. I always say the way that the Fringe works is it's a, it's a, it's a platform for entrepreneurialism. People need to take a risk on the platform. And we're not, um, we're a festival where people are investing in their own art and hoping they're going to sell enough tickets to get their money back. So what I always say to the head team, like we need to listen to what these people need because they're taking the risk and we need to help them to have the most financially viable season and creatively successful. And therefore rigidity and no does not work. No, to that. it no, really no, doesn't. No, it does not. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of, yeah, I mean, I guess um, there are times when you just have to say, I'm sorry, but that is beyond the realms, but I try not to. Mm. Try to say yes as much as we can. Why is it the arts that ignites your passion, Heather? Was this always what you immersed yourself in, even from when you are a schoolgirl, coming from Wyala? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting. I grew up in Wyala when it was actually a really thriving town, um, really thriving country town that most touring artists put on their calendar. So we had 
Philippe Jean T's French puppets come, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Wyala. Yeah, <laughs> you know, wow. Um, everyone was there, Jimmy Barnes, Cold Chisel, Sherbert, um, Billy Connolly. Like my childhood was full of going to see touring bands and artists. But and that, also, did that come from your family that or was being involved? Mother. Mom? Yeah, my yeah. mum was really big on it. And But then also there was a lot of art and sport actually. In a, It was a very young town, so lots of young teachers and families that moved for the steelworks and so on. So it was a town that was just full of kids and so we had a lot of arts and, and a lot of sport as well, a lot of theatre going on in Wyala, interestingly, at that time. I mean, it's a very different environment now in those kind of towns where the industry has kind of fallen away and so on. And then when I went to um, my final couple of years of school in Adelaide, I was really interested in radio and film and that's what I studied was filmmaking and I made documentaries for a long time and ran film festivals. But when I was at university, I used to work at the Adelaide Fringe and worked in lots of different venues. And then in 1992, I was managing the staff in the Star Club. And that's where Stomp came. And um, I mean, they just blew the roof off yeah, every night. It was. it was an amazing, like made a big impression on my life, working, running that Star Club and got really mentored by an amazing guy called John Pinder, who was really the main programmer of the Star Club. And so I guess from there I went off and did film and did film festivals and so on, but I was always, the Adelaide Fringe was always in my heart because I'd worked there very early on in my career. Mm. So film festivals, being involved in that, what happens in those years until all of a sudden you pick up and take the role as director and CEO What in 2015? Uh, so in um, I, I collaborated quite a lot with Katrina Sedgwick when Katrina was the director of the Adelaide Fringe in I think it was about 2000, 2002, and I was at that time running film events. I'd been running a Super 8 film event in the Fringe for about a decade called Shoot the Fringe where we used to give out Rolls of Super yeah, 8 people go and, and people capture went, it. Yeah, 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 and they yeah. used to shoot the fringe on their camera and then we used to show the films at the end. And so I'd done that for many years and um, Katrina and I worked together on collaborating on a lot of not only just film stuff but I was always really interested in the intersection of digital and technology and screens. So we were looking at how we could do digital work. This was a long time ago now, 20 years ago. And so I did a lot of um, work in the Fringe in 2002 programming um, a strand of screen and interactive work and that went really well and it was a big um, hit and it was the first time that we'd ever really had anything like that in the Fringe and I really just loved or always loved running events while I was also doing my filmmaking. As well, yeah. And one of the things I did as a documentary maker in, in my early years of documentary making was I, I just always made sure that I went to film festivals and marketplaces overseas because I just felt like that's as a way to raise funds but also to find collaborations and so on. And when I was um, appointed in 2003, I was appointed the director of the Australian Documentary Conference and 
when I got that job and Katrina was the director of the Adelaide Film Festival by then and we worked together because they were on, mm. we, we timed them so they were on at the same time so they could feed each other the film festival and the, and the conference. Um, and I created a marketplace in that conference based on what I'd seen overseas around really needing that sort of opportunity for business in the background of festivals. It became a really big hit when we called it the meat market and it was a great <laughs> like, place for people to do deals. And from there I had some people came over from the UK and they were in charge of the big documentary festival over there and they asked me if I would move to England and run the Sheffield Doc Fest, which is big, massive documentary yep. sort of meeting point in the calendar. Because I was born in Britain, I could pretty much go straight away. I had my passport and so Off on. And, you went. and um, it was a pretty incredible opportunity. I was there for 10 years and we exploded it into this huge festival, but it was really the market because I, I did the meat market there as well and that market became enormous um, and um, it's where films like Searching for Sugar Man found their money, like really big, fantastic films that had struggled for years to find any funders. And then the way we did the market was very bespoke matchmaking for meetings. I was yeah, really, yeah, I'm yeah. really passionate about it because um, when I was a filmmaker, it was the market that I wish existed. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to make the market that actually is fruitful for people who need to find the money. Because that is the biggest challenge in the yeah. arts, right? It is the funding, always has been and, and continues to be. And sort of blowing open the gatekeeper, like just blowing it open and saying, let's just get everyone to meet everyone. Yeah. Um, and it was very inclusive, bit like match made speed dating in a yeah, way. So yeah. it wasn't just like only you meet you, it was like everyone meets everyone. So we're all of a sudden we're back to that word that you started with in leadership and that is collaboration. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then when um, when I ran the meat market here, Christy Anthony was running the Fringe and she saw, you know, the meat market, the success of the meat market. We were talking about that and she's like, well, could something like that work in the Fringe? And so that was, you know, 15 years ago or something. Mm. Um, and she started the Honey Pot uh, after sort of looking at the way the meat market worked. And it was quite funny when, fast forward 10 years or so, I was appointed the fringe director and the, the, the honeypot marketplace was, was still there, there and, was there, and yeah. it was something I'd been involved in in those very early days. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to really dial up the marketplace here and because yeah. I just want to f- help artists make a living and if they could do more than just the season here in Fringe and actually meet people that might book their show for a tour then we then we've got people that are actually sustaining a living That's in the right. arts and the it's, longevity. Yeah, it's so amazing. Um, take me to your first fringe festival as director in charge. Yes. What were the biggest challenges that you faced then? I guess leading something for the first time. Yeah. No matter how many festivals you've done, how many other amazing yeah. things you've done, this is still your first time. What were some of the biggest leadership challenges you had? Well, one of the biggest problems was that when I arrived, the ticketing system was broken. So I arrived and I watched the 2015 um, festival happen. So Greg Clark, who was the outgoing director, was there 
and we basically spent the time of the fringe together mm-hmm. and he'd take me around, tell me what this problem But I did start to get phone calls from people going, I hadn't, I had started but I was sort of just coming in and I was getting po- phone calls from presenters and people saying, your ticket system's down, your ticket system's down. I was like, oh, right, okay, this, what do is, we do this here? could be a bigger problem than I thought. <laughs> and so the pressure, I mean, the, the ticket system had lived for about 15 years. Well, and, and then it just basically went kaput. No, it had been collapsed. So the problem with the, 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 the challenge, the brilliant problem about the fringe is that we're selling thousands and thousands of tickets every right. single day. Yeah. And the pressure on the system, because it was 15 years old and was built in HTML and code that yeah, didn't yeah, even yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was not fit for purpose anymore. And so it wasn't a matter of we might want to fix it. It was like we need to throw that entire thing in the bin and because the festival cycle is so unforgiving, we've actually got a few months to build a whole new one. Yeah. And I had built digital ticketing systems and digital platforms in my previous two festivals. So it was something I was I was yeah. really passionate about and it was very major in the mission that I was set by the board was fix this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had to do it quickly and we uh, did a, we researched, we tried to gather as much as possible as much information as possible around what are the problems. So finding out what the user journeys were, what the pains were for the customer, what the pains for the artist, what the pains for the presenter, what do they need. And my background in digital platform creators was really useful, but this was bigger than anything I'd ever built before. And so that was probably one of the biggest challenges that I had to really crack on with straight Mm, away, mm. but also getting everybody on who was already in the fringe to understand that this was like, we need everyone on this boat, we need to go. So here I feel like from a leadership perspective must have been the biggest challenge. You had the background, you had the Mm. technical knowledge, you knew Mm. if we could go down this ticketing path or whatever it might be, we know that this can work, but getting everyone on board for change, that That must have been immense. That was really hard. So how did you go about it and what did you learn out of those processes of trying to engage and bring people along? One thing was we didn't have a lot of time and I probably would have wanted to say let's do this a little bit slower in terms of allowing people time to get on the boat. Yep. But we didn't really have much time because fringe registrations begin in six months. And so one thing I do remember about it is it became clear there were some people that just were not coming on the journey um, and that was okay. And some of them were staff and some of them were board members and some of them were, you know, they were all all in different places. Okay, you're saying, though, that that was okay, but I would imagine that if they're not on that journey, there's the potential that they become disruptors. There's the yeah. potential they could try. Yeah, you, you would lose them completely. There's the potential that they could try to ruin what yeah. you were trying to do. Yeah, we had to find the people that were really on. Um, you had to just keep the core of the people who really understood what we were trying to build. Mm-hmm. And I have to say my chairman was incredible Like, because he knew the challenges that we were facing and that not everybody really understood that this was mission-critical stuff, this wasn't an option. And so um, we made sure there was no light between the people who were in the core of it, like right in the centre uh, of, okay, some people were a bit not sure, others were, I'm not, really jumping on this boat, (laughs) but the people that were absolutely central 
there was no light between us and we just said this is what we need to do. So and same hymn book, everyone's going together yeah. and we are united. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what we did in that first year was build whatever we could to get the 2016 Fringe up and running but we knew that it was stage, we knew it was iteration one of yeah, yeah, many yeah. And, and it's only gotten better every single year and that's when we, the people that did stay and were on it, those people, a lot of them are still at Fringe. So um, I've worked with probably there's, we have about 35 people year round in the Fringe office working year round. We obviously expand to a lot more during Fringe season, but of that 35, I'd say about 10 of them have done every Fringe with me and about 10 have done quite mm. a few and then 10 are more, you know, one or two years. Yeah. So the people, a lot of the people that did the really early digital transition, the new platform, a lot of them are still, still there, there and they are committed to the fact that we have to always continuously improve this system. We never sit back and just go, it's done. Yeah. We always say, how can we do it better? What's next? As a leader going into that being your first fringe um, in charge, was there a certain amount of grief or stress or worry for you knowing that people would have to be eventually, I guess, left by the wayside if you needed to get this project through? Did oh, you feel? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was definitely, it wasn't, when I say it was okay, I mean, it wasn't yeah. like, yeah, it was a walk in the park. It was definitely tough. And um, did you have to have hard conversations that you hadn't really had up until that time? Or have you yeah. always had to have these type of conversations? I think, I think when you're making big change like that, you will always have to accept that there's going to be a percentage of people that aren't wanting to go on the change journey. Um, so being willing to have the difficult conversations and not shying away from them, that's the worst thing you can do is to just ignore them and pretend that you don't need to have them. Mm. So having those difficult conversations but also thinking, well, I don't need to be the only person that has these difficult conversations. And so I would be able to look to people on the board or people who were um, in different other, even even other leaders, like talking to other leaders about the way to navigate things like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've always find that um, getting some really good advice around how to, when you can see that someone really doesn't want to go on the pathway that you're going on, it's the worst thing would be to ignore it and just let them fester. You have to have the difficult conversations. Yep. And then either make that decision to cut ties or yeah. change time. Yeah, if you can't get them on board, that's yeah. what it comes or, down to. Yeah, and I used to, well, often I bring in, and I still do, often I'll bring in people to do some all cultural training, all organisational training, all, you know, in, in all different areas. But sometimes it is about having a, um, we want everyone to get into a bit more of a mindset of this, you know, let's embark on this fairly difficult journey of change. Yeah. But it, we don't have a choice to just roll. We're not sausage factory. We're not going to keep rolling out the same thing. So sometimes it's about bringing in consultants to help you with the guy or workshop leaders, facilitators, and other times it might be a one-on-one -on -one meeting and having some other people there as well. Mm -hmm. Being willing to look outward and listen to what other people mm 
look, I think every organisation might say, we've got a problem with communication or yeah. something like that. You know, It's just such a broad thing. But we've done a lot of work around how can we get better at communicating? Like how can we not have silos in departments? How can we – and sometimes it's like the – is it as simple as just defining we – like we have a weekly meeting which is the – the check-in meeting where everyone goes to the kitchen and we try to share as much information across and no and it's not a sit down meeting or anything it's not like a proper hours of meeting mm. it's more like okay what's everyone doing it's a temperature and, check of everybody yeah and we, sort of, we try yeah. and do that every um you know middle of the week and then we try to make sure that there's work in progress meetings going on in every department, but that there's also cross-departmental meetings, especially when you go as fast as the fringe does and there's quite a lot of change quite often and we're trying to be adaptive and agile Mm. and listen to what other people want. It's really important that you draw the communication channels in so many lines and say, is anyone out in a silo? Because if they are, we need to get Get them them off that island and get them in. (laughs) What's the most important ingredient, do you think, for a festival's success? Is it the support or the artists and the treatment of the artists? Is it ticket sales? Is it, you know, having um, supporters and sponsors like the University of Adelaide, for example, they have been long-time supporters Mm. of the Fringe? You know, what is a success to you as a leader of the Fringe? Well, I mean, I know this is a bit – it's hard to – pick one of those. I mean, it is a tapestry of everything that you just said. You are sewing together a tapestry of all of that. Ultimately, we do try and put artists at the centre of everything that we do and we try and put the artist lens on all the time. So we should work as hard as we possibly can to make sure that they sell as many tickets as they can because that's what's making their season financially viable. That's in our festival's model. So other festival's models, they might invite an artist and then they pay them and then they keep the, the festival keeps the box office but the artist gets a flat fee. That's a different model to the fringe model. So the way the fringe works is we are a approximately $30 million festival, but we have to sell about $20 million worth of tickets in order to meet that $30 million costing of the festival. So selling tickets is absolutely critical for Fringe. It's really a big priority. We're trying to sell as many tickets in every single show as possible so that all those artists get paid and get their money. Um, But also, um, like, for example, about five years ago, we started the uh, donor circle and the philanthropic arm of the Fringe because when we surveyed artists, we said, what is it you need? And they said, A, they want... (laughs) sell more tickets, but they also said they want some grant assistance at the beginning of their season to help with cash flow and development. And I was thinking, well, how can we even do that? Mm, But, of course, you know, we we just tried it and asked people, do you want to give a donation and then we'll give them to the artists in the fringe. And now we're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations every year and we give absolutely all of it out to the artists. We don't keep any of it. So making sure that the artists have a good experience and that was about ticket sales and grants up front. But then listening to the customers, what their journey is, to make it easy for them to participate in the fringe and that's been a lot around the digital work that we've done to make the ticketing system as simple as possible. Yeah, yeah. and then the website for people to be able to interact and find what it is that they want. That's right. And also the partners are so critical as well. I mean, we we worked a lot a few years ago on 
um, identifying the values of the fringe collectively as a staff team. We did that on a um, we do it every year. We update it. But what are they? What are the values? So the values of the fringe are creative, collaborative, adaptive, persistent, and we want to work with partners who believe in those values as well. Do, do you know? Yeah, like that, yeah. we, we we try and make sure that the values. Uh, inherent in what we do, in how the fringe happens, but also in how the sponsors and partners come on. And how everybody interacts. Yeah. yeah. And we, we, we wrote a manifesto as well one time. So, you know, we love doing things like that with the staff and, and with any collaborators who want to be part of it. But trying to um, say this is what we are and this is what we're not and this is what we want to be doing and this is what we don't want to be doing and this is what we believe in. And, and if you want to be, if you want to be like that too, come with us. Yeah, mm. and then it sounds like there is also the importance of that uh, communication, which is what yeah. we're speaking about, and so communicating important. those values. Um, everything's going swimmingly. I kept seeing all these records break every year, and I see this, I see this, I see this, and then along comes COVID. That twenty twenty season just sneaks through. And it's almost the last weekend is the last weekend of freedom for most people in the country, but certainly here in South Australia. What was going through your mind when you've got thousands of artists, thousands of people turning up and we start to get all these news reports that this thing is coming? The first thing, I mean, once we knew that we could actually, once we knew we could actually finish the season, because first of all, on that Friday, we didn't know if we were shutting down on the Friday or the Sunday. So once we realised we could get through the season, we were right. What we could see was a mass of artists that were getting their see everything cancelled. Their calendars were just decimated. Every future, like they weren't going on to Melbourne, they weren't going on to Brisbane, they weren't, and that was just heartbreaking. Um, and many of them got essentially stuck here in South Australia. There was mm. nowhere for them to go. They couldn't That's go anywhere. That's right. Mm. And um, one of the first things we did was to reach out to some of our already existing philanthropic partners and say, is there any way you could increase support? And we will actually give out some micro grants to support especially the really independent artists who just had lost every future booking and so on. We did that. And then we also set up an online, we tried to set up an online show opportunity for people to buy tickets online, which, um, I mean, I look back at it and I think, we were just trying our best to create an opportunity for artists. That's what our, you know, we we didn't want to shut the office and say, well, we're okay, we're mm. just shutting the office. But, in you know, I think what we all learnt over the years is that, you know, that does not replace seeing shows and that the numbers of people that are willing to even buy something online will, is never going to be anything like what people are going to come and see. But we just were trying to respond to how can we help the artists who are we mm. see as central to everything that we do. We then had to start in that way that we are willing to always think in new ways. We had to plan everything with SA Health and we always work with the police anyway, but we worked a lot more that year. In leading up to 21, we met with SA SA Health were at our meetings all the time. We were making the festival with SA Health at the table. How hard was that? How tricky was that? Because let's face it, government departments and bureaucratic departments um, aren't always 
flexible, collaborative, adaptive, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, all those all things, things, especially, especially when they're in the middle of a worldwide global pandemic. I mean, it was really hard. And we could have decided, I guess, very early on that we're cancelling. That That is one option that we could have done. Um, but we did talk at uh, board level and staff level at the staff planning day. We said, well, how could we approach this in keeping our minds as open and adaptive as we like to try and do. Mm. Um, and so we decided that we wouldn't make a call really early and cancel because then we thought, well, if we cancel really early, because we could see that restrictions were opening and Changing. closing all the yeah. time. Yeah. And we thought, what if restrictions lift in time and we cancelled four months earlier and we could have had a fringe <laughs> for, you know, um, for the artists, but also for the people of South Australia. Yeah. So I pinch myself when I look back now because we didn't miss a year. No. So we didn't miss 21 and we didn't miss 22 and we didn't miss 2020. So when restrictions were lifted and even the borders opened as well, just before the 21 fringe and just before the 22, so interstate artists could come in. We couldn't have internationals. No, but, but you had interstate. But we still had, yeah, so we... In 2021, we were still able to, yeah, so we had all that growth, as you mentioned. We we went from 500,000 tickets to 600,000 to 700. And then, of course, 2020, I think we sold 850,000 tickets. And so we were thinking we're on the way to sell a million tickets. This is so exciting. We we wanted to sell a million tickets a year for ever since I started and I said let's sell a million tickets a year. And so then obviously that the got done. Um, but, you know, we still sold 750,000 tickets in COVID times, which I just can't even believe it's mm. really. Mm. Uh, and so when you saw the joy on the people's faces when they were coming out for the first time in ages, it was incredibly moving, but also the artists yeah. hadn't earned any money since probably the last French. But I mean, even, even more than the earning money, I would imagine, oh. it's the belief of mm. who you are as a person in that creative space and they have never, you know, they hadn't been able to do any of that. No, they hadn't been on stage. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and a lot of them did actually, you know, weep after their shows and just go, I haven't been on stage yeah. for a year. yeah. The last couple of years, we've started to see some incredible accolades and achievement from CEO Magazine's Festival CEO over the year. There's some leadership awards as well, two years in a row as SA Woman of the Year awards in there as well. What do you think sets you apart as a leader? Um, um, well, I am persistent. Besides your amazing jackets and everything else, yeah. um, dear podcaster listener, go on Google Heather Kroll and see the cool stuff she wears. But aside from that. <laughs> All my, my sequence jackets sequence. that are my, my uniform. Um, yeah, uh, well, um, I, I am persistent and I don't give up. I think I probably am very resilient because you can have a lot of, the, the when you're the CEO you, of anything, I think, but um, you have a lot of people that might want to tear you down and people that might be detractors and so on and, and that exists um, but you, you do need to be resilient and you need to just bounce back and find the people that want to work with you and I'm very open to working with I love, I actually just get an, a real buzz out of working with lots of people and collaborating with lots of people. So so I'll just say yes to almost anyone that says, can you meet me? I'll always go and meet everyone and I want to look out as well as look in 
sometimes I feel I'd probably wish I had more time to do more time one-on-one with staff, but that's one thing you just can't have enough minutes in the day. So mm-hmm. structure in the organisation is important for that. So, But I think being aware that you're in an, you know, you need to, co- to work with lots of different people in the ecosystem. I've I've brought people into the fringe landscape that Probably are quite in the in a corporate world yeah, or okay. in a more who, who who or in the education spheres or and I'm I just try and make sure everyone can see that they've got a place in whatever I'm running. Like I love being inclusive. Yeah, I'm not an exclusive person. I can't. I'm not really into exclusivity <laughs> at all. And so I love one come one come all. And if you're you know people say oh the fringe isn't really I don't know. It, Definitely could be for that sector. Let's see how it could be. Like you know, how we yeah, so the, traditionally maybe stuffy banker type. Well, that's mm. not for the fringe, or you know, yeah, buff head rugby. Oh my god, yeah. I'm so stereotyping here. This is gross. But you know yeah. what I mean. Like, but yeah, but there and is like a place science. For everybody. We 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 went and worked with um, uh, a lot of different science departments, and said, and now we actually create the program science in the fringe so it's like you know if there's any science theme shows um there we go so uh we've you know i try and um say there's there's uh room for everyone and Mm. and and just be really inclusive the university of adelaide has an incredible professional and continuing education program pace um do you continue to challenge and educate yourself along the way and have you i guess listening to how busy you are like do you have time or do you put a priority on that I definitely try to do that. Um, I did the Governor's Leadership course, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a year-long course a few years ago. Um, I learnt so much from it. It was really brilliant. I recommend it to people. It is tough, though, because it's not um, forgiving in terms of you're not allowed to miss a minute. (laughs) You have to be on every... You lose all your weekends that that year. Um, Very amazing course. And and it does... um, You know, I was working with leaders from defence, agriculture, commerce, all sorts of people do the course together. So further education... And challenging yourself is very important. Always. Yeah. Yeah. And listening to like finding um, what other people are doing and learning how to challenge yourself and think, well, maybe what, because if I say to people, look, it's all change or whatever, it's not, I can't not change. That would be like, everyone's changing except me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm here to collaborate, (laughs) except I'm not Not going to collaborate. Yeah. I get it. All right, Heather, here's the big question to finish with. What have you learned from being a leader that you wish you knew at the start of your career? That it's good to take time to say, like, I don't know the answer to that. I really have no idea. I'm going to go and learn and listen to anyone and everyone and that you can find some of the most fantastic gems from people that might work in a diametrically opposed industry I've learned some incredible stuff from uh, speaking to a CEO who works in like the car industry and I learned some really amazing uh, methodologies and approaches from him and now I can apply them with the staff in terms of it's not just only the methodologies in one industry can work in another Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it is a bit about that thing of you're on and ever learning you're on a, you're always on a learning curve and you should always reconsider whether 
it's a good idea to do what you did last time or stop and have a look and think maybe we might do it differently next time. So then from the sound of it, you were very open to the fact if we were to sit down in 10 or 15 years and you've gone through some of this, you know, pace type learning, mm. you might actually be a little bit different or yeah. maybe not as a, not generally as a person but your methodologies or the yeah. way you look at something might be different. I think so, yeah. And I also want like one of the things that really impacted on me some years ago now was about uh, product design and user-centred design and things, all those sort of like different mm-hmm. ways of thinking of where you don't actually put the idea at the beginning or the middle, you actually put the audience and the user at the centre and how are they going to experience what you're doing. It's just a flip of Yeah, that of paradigm must have been a massive paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, that, I love that because it's quite often in the creative industries, it's everything's about the ideas, the centre and the ideas, the king, but if you stop that and then you flip it and think, oh, what about the audience as the king or what about, what about the, well, not the king, but the yeah, audience yeah. as the centre, put the audience at the centre and design around that. And so, yeah, just being open to new ways of approaching things and mm-hmm. and I think also being empathetic as well, like looking at something from another person's point of view. I, I think as you get older you do that more. So, yeah. so I probably didn't do that as much when I was younger. <laughs> You kind of worry. I can see the look on your face. Did I? Did I not? <laughs> You're going to drive away that, from here and go back um, to my young, <laughs> blistering years. Uh, <laughs> hey, Heather Kroll, um, look, so many artists would appreciate when I said thank you for everything that you've been doing for the art scene here in obviously South Australia, but it is mm. absolutely trickling and does trickle nationwide and even internationally. So thank you very much for giving us your time today. Oh, thank you. I'm just grateful to have a chat with you too. Thanks. Because you're a collaborator. See? Oh, yeah, you love it. It's fun. <laughs> I could sit here all day and chat with you more. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Pace at the University of Adelaide on LinkedIn for more on how you can take your career to new heights.